This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Stefan Sogmeister, one of today's most influential graphic designers, about the film he's making on happiness and about his practice of taking time off every seven years. I learned in the first sabbatical that it's maybe the best strategy that I ever came up with to make sure that what I do remains a calling and doesn't deteriorate into a job or into a career. Here's Debbie Millman, first with a little story. Three things happened when I turned 30. I got divorced, I quit my job, and I moved out of the studio apartment I had shared with my husband. Luckily, I also found a good therapist and consequently spent the next year frequenting her office, freelancing, and then moving yet again after the wretched discovery that my new apartment was hopelessly infested with fleas. After several failed attempts to remove them, my exterminator convinced me that the only way to rid my new home of the most insidious insect known to man was to burn the entire 100-year-old building down to the ground. I decided a more prudent path would be to move. The day I left was a dark one. I was cranky and hungover and bitter that my life seemed so unwieldy and unsatisfying. As I passed a hairbrush through the bird's nest on top of my head, I realized that at that very moment I had no home, no husband, and no job. And I was 30. I was over the hill, I had a raging headache, and I was badly in need of a good haircut. The moving men that came to assist me that day were a bunch of young, tough-talking, handsome Israeli men. After eight hours of watching them load and unload everything in the world that I owned, I began to see the absurdity in what they were doing. How odd it seemed to be taking all of these ridiculous things from place to place. How sad it seemed to be so attached to photo albums and candlesticks and silly posters and cheap metal frames. I suddenly felt sorry for the moving men, having to schlep all my stuff from street to street, from home to home, and I tried to help them carry my raggedy, overstuffed boxes. One of the movers seemed to sense what I was thinking, patted me on the back, and steered me away from the clutter. I smiled at his benevolence, and by the end of the move, my headache was replaced by a crush. When I settled my bill, I brazenly asked him if he had a girlfriend. No, he responded, slightly embarrassed and slightly surprised. Well, then call me, I said firmly, and handed him a scrap of paper with my number. Two days later, he did. Five days later, we went on our first date. And four weeks after that, we were madly in love and planning a trip to Israel to visit his friends and family. My new boyfriend wanted to spend all of July and August in the Middle East. This terrified me. The fear was not a result of the political turbulence in his home country. I simply felt that if I were to go away for that long, I would become unemployable and penniless. Somehow, being out of sight and out of mind for what amounted to an entire summer would render me jobless. I may never work again. Both my boyfriend and my therapist tried to persuade me that this magical thinking wasn't realistic or healthy, and in an effort to please them both, I decided to go. I finished up my freelance projects and sublet my new apartment. 
but I had been interviewing for a job I desperately wanted, and I worried that if I told them I would be traveling for so long, they wouldn't seriously consider me for the job. So I alerted my subletter that if they called, he must not tell them I was out of the country. Instead, I instructed him to immediately call my boyfriend's parents in Israel, who would then find a way to get me the message. All through the trip, I worried that I was missing my all-important call. When word from my prospective new employer came, we were visiting with my boyfriend's buddies in an army base. When I was finally able to return the call, I found myself leaning against the glass door of a dirty payphone on the side of an abandoned road on the Jordan-Israel border. When my contact answered the phone, she questioned our spotty connection. I made a silly excuse, and we agreed to meet in several weeks, mercifully scheduling a date after I returned home. All I can remember about that trip now was the amazing food, the wailing wall, and how thoroughly stressed out I was nearly the entire time I was there. Perhaps I needed to worry. Perhaps I felt guilty not working. Perhaps this behavior was simply how I reconciled my shame. But looking back on it now, my fear of being infinitely unemployed was palpable. I never once considered that I was worthy of getting a new job. I only realize now that, in the grand scheme of things, the time between gainful employments was brief. Had I given myself the freedom to enjoy the discovery of a foreign culture, had I even the slightest confidence in my abilities, I might have come back capable of bigger, better opportunities. Instead, I returned home, received my coveted job offer, and worked there for nine months until, utterly disappointed, I realized this job wouldn't make me happy either. It was then, and only then, that I found myself facing a new direction that would finally ignite my talent and my imagination. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. My guest today is Stefan Sagmeister, the Austrian-born, New York-based principal of Sagmeister, Inc. His identity systems, posters, books, and perhaps most famously, his compact disc packaging for artists such as David Byrne, Lou Reed, and the Rolling Stones have made him one of today's most visible and influential graphic designers. Sagmeister has recently returned from his second year-long sabbatical from client work, during which he moved his practice to Bali in order to focus exclusively on experimental projects. Stefan is also the author of Made You Look and Things I Have Learned in My Life So Far. Stefan last visited Design Matters in 2005. Welcome again to Design Matters, Stefan. Thank you, Debbie. So you recently completed your second sabbatical where you took an entire year off of working with clients. Why did you do this? Oh, like, I'd say, like most things in my life, there's a ton of reasons. One of them for sure was that the first sabbatical was very successful. Mm -hmm. So I probably could quickly talk about the reasons for the first sabbatical because in some ways they're identical to the second, in some ways they're different. I suspected that it's going to be a great break that allows me to step back and think about what I do and for whom I do it. I learned in the first sabbatical that it's maybe the best strategy that I ever came up with to make sure that what I do remains a calling and doesn't deteriorate into a job or into a career. 
And I was surprised, actually, after having run the studio in New York for seven years and basically having exactly the kind of studio that I was hoping I would have after a couple of years, meaning we were working for the clients that I wanted to. We were doing exactly the kind of work that I was hoping that we would do. The business was good, it was financially fine. And still, I adapted to all of that. At the time, I still thought that this was some sort of personal character flaw. The fact that once I achieved what I really wanted, this didn't make me permanently happy, that there's something wrong with me in that. By now, of course, in my second sabbatical, I did read a lot of psychology, and it turns out that this is pretty much human, that this basically happens to everybody. So there are two questions that are, are following what you just said. The first being the idea of being and staying happy. Do you think that it's human nature to start out being happy about something new or exciting and then it dissipates? Yes. Yeah, so, I think that is human nature. And I think it happens not just with less important things like designing CD covers that you adapt to and get used to mm -hmm. and that the 48 CD cover isn't as much fun as the first one was. But I think it actually happens with everything that is in our lives for a long time. It happens even with babies, for example. You know, when that baby has mom for the first time, very much likely it's more exciting than when that baby is 13 years old and shouts, Mom, can I get more money? Now, you talked at a conference that I saw maybe a year or so ago about Danny Gilbert and mm -hmm. his research on happiness. And I was really struck by how he had investigated levels of happiness and that somebody that won lotto and somebody that went through a catastrophic personal accident both ended up at the same level of happiness factor that they'd had six months prior to each event occurring. And so we rise or fall to a sort of pre-wired happiness level. Yes. Basically, he says that there are almost no events in our lives that play a significant role a year after the event happened. So we tend to completely overestimate their impact, positive events and negative events. Yet we imagine that this terrible thing will, you know, get us down permanently. He has a couple of exceptions. I think the death of a child caring for somebody with Alzheimer's over a long period are things that apparently human nature doesn't really allow us to, to really adapt to. But there are very, very few. Most events we do adapt to, positive and negative ones, as well as the ones that we don't want to adapt to. For example, making more money. <laughs> uh, wouldn't it be great if a pay raise would make us happy for the whole three years that pay raise lasts? Normally, it's, you know, a reason to have a nice dinner on the day it happens, and it might make things easier here and there. Another number that Daniel Gilbert came up with is that within the United States, money makes a a fairly significant difference all the way until you're properly housed and properly fed. Beyond that, and he puts that number at roughly $50,000 a year, 
money makes a surprisingly insignificant difference. So why do you think we keep striving for this, despite knowing that this knowledge exists about levels of happiness, we still, as a human species, seem so bound and determined to strive for more than whatever we have at any given moment. But a very wonderful explanation for it comes from a UK psychologist, Daniel Nettle, who actually was also nice enough to write the foreword of one of the essays in our Things I've Learned in My Life book. And he compares happiness to a carrot that evolution designed for us to just hang in front of us so that we would always go after it but never quite reach it because evolution is really not interested in us reaching happiness because what would happen? We probably would be lazy, not develop, stay at the same spot, eat and have sex all the time. <laughs> and that's not really the, the goal of evolution. Evolution wants us to develop, wants, to, wants us to get better. But it seems that there are things that we can do to improve well-being. And I'm trying some of those things out right now to actually see if they do. Do you think it's important for people to be happy? I'd say most people, the Viennese accepted. <laughs> and most acts that most people do, as convoluted or as many side roads they might take, go in that direction. And this entire idea of the tortured artist syndrome, I, I for sure don't know, don't know it from my own experience, but then, of course, I'm a designer, not an artist. But my guess would be that this uh, has been overblown, even in the art world, including, you know, stories of the poster child of this entire movement, Vincent van Gogh, right, right. where it now turns out, you know, research shows that he never cut his own ear off. It was a drunken fight with Gauguin and <laughs> where Van Gogh never pressed charges. But I also saw a fairly convincing study among artists. And it is true that there are more artists leaning towards depression compared to the regular population. And there was a study with lithium among those artists. And the majority reported an increase in their creative output, because even the best artists, when they are in a funk during a depression, actually don't create anything. And I'd definitely say that from my own experience, the work when I'm in a good mood, self-confident, becomes better. Now, you just said that you consider yourself a designer and not an artist. And two years ago, uh, at the opening reception uh, at Art Basel for things I've learned in my life so far, you were also very explicit about describing your work as design and not art. How do you make that distinction? Well, as a viewer, I don't care one way or another. If I go to a place and something touches me, I really don't care if it's a piece of design or a piece of art or a piece of garbage, for mm -hmm. that matter. It's either good or it's not good. As a doer, I do think there is a distinction, simply because that's how the world runs, meaning the art market and the design market are two distinctive worlds. I mean, obviously, they overlap. You know, clearly, there are a lot of artists who are influenced by the design world and work within it 
with its tools or its mediums and vice versa. But I think the nicest and easiest way of distinction is probably one of functionality. My favorite quote in that whole realm comes from Donald Judd, who actually did design and did art. And he said, design has to work, art does not. So art has that incredibly envious position of not having to do anything. It can just be. It doesn't have to function in any way or form. But I think every piece of design does. If I design a watch and I design it, I push it to such an extent that it doesn't really tell the time anymore, it becomes a little sculpture. And then, of course, I can look at that little sculpture and can say, oh, is it a good sculpture or is it a bad sculpture? So I think I disagree with you. You're saying that you agree with Donald Judd and that he said that design has to work and art doesn't. Why doesn't art have to work? Well, I think it's a distinction that would probably be true for art after Duchamp. Okay. Art, traditionally, if you look at, I don't know, Italian portraiture from the 16th century, all that art needed to work. They had to glorify the person who was portrayed. They had to glorify God. It had to glorify the powerful. So all that art was working. I think right now there is a much more, from my point of view, probably a Zen-like approach to art, where a piece of art doesn't really have to have a function. But doesn't art, just by the sheer terminology, by defining something as art, classifying it, you're designating it as something, as that something, it plays a role in the same way that design does. They might have different roles, but they both have to serve a purpose in the constructs of our reality. Whether or not they work is almost irrelevant because people might look at two pieces of art and it might make sense to one person and not make sense to another person. But to the person that it does make sense to, it's providing an enormous purpose in, in that person's life. Well, I think we're getting on a slippery philosophical slope here. I think the function that Donald Chad is talking about is much more a hands-on real-life function as I'm drinking out of this glass, my watch tells me the time. When it comes to a philosophical function, the two, of course, merge very closely. Because if I, you know, say this piece of art can tell me something about the way my society lives right now, that, of course, can be accomplished by a piece of art, and that function can also be accomplished by a very good chair. But by and large, with a couple of exceptions, I won't be able to sit on the piece of art unless it's... Mies van der Rohe. <laughs> who, of course, was a designer. <laughs> uh, but let's say unless it's a Martin Kippenberger... <laughs> who, you know, buys a monochromatic Richter and makes a coffee table out of it, you know? Yes. I want to come back to, for a moment to your sabbatical because I was thinking as we were talking, one of your diary entries that became part of things that I've learned in my life so far, one that's particularly close to me is a line that you wrote called, over time I get used to everything and start taking it for granted. And I'm wondering, was there ever a moment in Bali where you took it for granted? Yes. And Absolutely. when? Was it a year in as per our sort of arbiter of happiness quotient? 
No, I think it was about six months then. The first three were just absolutely glorious, you know, with numerous moments in the beginning, hourly and then daily, of the thought shooting through my head, I just can't believe this is happening right mm-hmm. now. This yeah, is just it's so fantastic. Extraordinary. I, I looked at the TED video again and saw that time uh, sunrise, sunset film that you made. And it was extraordinary thinking this was your view every day. It's a beautiful country. But I did adapt to Bali. And I think there is absolutely truly nothing out there that we could hope would keep us new, fresh, and engaged forever. When you did the first sabbatical, did you know that in seven years' time you would be doing another? Did you set that construct up at that point? No. I only knew that at the end of the first sabbatical, when we were back at work, when I started to feel that this was really good, that this had a whole bunch of advantages. And also when I saw that none of the fears that I had, and I had plenty, actually materialized. I, of course, thought very much like you mentioned on your Israel trip, that everybody will have forgotten us, that this is a crazy thing to do in the middle of a boom. This was the first sabbatical, was in the year 2000. You felt felt that way too? (laughs) Yes, very, very much so. To the point where I felt so unprofessional about it that for a second I considered lying about the whole thing. Really? And thinking that, oh, I'll just tell everybody we have this giant job and I can't take on anything else for the year. And luckily I didn't because by coming out and just telling everybody, no, that's what I'm going to do, it turned out that there was not a single client who wasn't supportive of it. I mean, we gave them ample warning warning on both of them so nobody was left hanging. Most clients, well, every client actually that I talked to was more envious or said, oh, I would love to do something like it. When I look back now, the work that we did in the seven years following the first sabbatical, almost everything had some sort of root or some sort of seed that came out of that first sabbatical. And even if I look at it from a just from a financial standpoint. How did you manage it financially? Did you save up beforehand? Save some money. Quite, quite a yeah, save some money. And, you know, luckily, both periods, both seven-year periods from 93 to 2000 and from 2001 to 2008 were fairly good periods in New York City. And in my case, considering I had always kept the studio very, very small, it was also a thing that just was possible. But, you know, then on the other hand, there are giant companies who do sabbaticals for all of their employees or a version of a sabbatical. You know, Google's 20% of personal time use is nothing but a sabbatical. I mean, I fell into this one year every seven year period, but I think this is doable in any sense. You know, I mean, it's doable, I don't know, two hours every day or a day or two every week. The way the time is dispersed will be different from person to person and job to job. And I don't think it matters that much. But what really matters, what really, really matters is that time is planned and is kept pretty holy, meaning is not interrupted by anything else. What were the list of things that you wanted to accomplish? It was a a whole bunch. uh, One of them was furniture. 
because while I was gone, my studio was renovated. And when I had looked while still in New York for some of the furniture that I liked, I really couldn't afford it. So I thought, well, I'll just design it in Bali. That's a new direction. Never had neither an interest nor an ability to do anything with furniture. And that, of course, I knew already about that there is a gigantic craft scene there so that you could get things done. Now, in recent years, you've produced work at a very large scale. room size installations, inflatable monkeys, billboard projects, environmental installations in public spaces, some vehicles for True Majority. Do you see this increase in scale as a part of your current intellectual creative trajectory? No. So no. Just, just something that you I find... I think that worked for those projects we did it for. Sometimes scale was needed, let's say, like in the case of the monkeys, because we were commissioned by an arm of the Scottish government to do something that would give attention to their Six City Design Festival. And these things needed to happen in each of the six Scottish cities and needed to create attention. So scale was very much part of the entire job. But I have absolutely no desire to now basically top every project with another that's bigger and grander and wind up with one giant thing after the other. No, not at all. I was so interested. I ordered Brian Eno and David Burns' last CD that you designed the package for. And on the outside of the package, it's almost as if it's a miniature village. And I was thinking about the miniature village, looking at this, thinking that it was so pristinely perfect, and then remembering the giant inflatable monkey. Do you approach these different sized projects differently or is it all one much more organic process that you use for uh, developing ideas? Well, I mean, I think I know the small scale much better than the large scale. I was always very comfortable with the tininess of the CD cover. You know, in some sense, the term toolbox was perfect because you could spend months and months on something and wind up then with something so tiny and portable. One of the most wonderful stories I heard from a friend of mine who works at Pixar has been there for almost 20 years. And he said that the entire output of Pixar, 500 of the world's best people in that world, is 10 and a half hour of movies. So basically you could fit these 20 years of these 500 people on a couple of DVDs and walk away with them in your coat pocket. Isn't and I found that so, I don't know, pleasing, so wonderful. So I actually, I really like small scale. I want to ask you uh, about some of the film titles that you made while you were in Bali. Because um, back in 2006, when I interviewed you for my book, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer, we talked about your first sabbatical. And you said this. In the very beginning of the year, I thought I might rather be a movie director than a graphic designer. 
For me, this seemed like an intriguing option to pursue. Having been somewhat close to the movie industry, directing a music video for Lou Reed, and having a number of friends who are in the business, I was not very naive about doing something like this. I figured it would likely be a 10-year process until I could hope to have made something I would be happy with. I started to map out how these 10 years would look, what I would do, how I would learn, which school I could go to, and how I would make it happen financially. As intriguing as I found the process, I couldn't help but wonder what would happen if I went through this process, this learning of a new language, and after 10 years, I had nothing to say in it. Then it occurred to me that it might be smarter if I stuck with the language I already knew and tried to really say something with it. And that paragraph haunted me when I saw the film titles. And I was so happy because I remember when you first said that to me, I thought, Stefan Sackmeister, if you put your mind to anything, you could do it. And then here I came, you came after the second sabbatical and I saw you were going to be making a movie about happiness. And here were these marvelous film titles. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I think that probably on the second time around, I took a little bit of a smaller bite. On the first one, what... I had in mind was somewhat a feature film, as in a narrative film. The Happiness Project is really a documentary. It's quite graphic designy in nature, meaning there's going to be, you know, animation and charts and, and all that stuff. So I feel that it's closer to the language that I do somehow know how to speak. At the same time, still, it's daunting. Is that something that you're currently working on in a regular way now? Yeah, but much too slow. I mean, I need to be more precise on it on which days I'm really working on it because I'm also quite aware of the fact that if I let this become a 10-year project, I'm going to hate everything, you know, that I did five years earlier. And I think once you're into the redoing of segments that you already did that you're not happy anymore because it's now that much time went down the drain. It becomes one of those projects that become annoying for everybody involved. I think in graphic design, there's a whole bunch of design companies out there who've been planning their monographs for 10 or 15 years. And I think this is where this whole sentiment that doing your own book is the most difficult job in there is, comes from. So I'm aware that this has to, it's going to be a long project, but I hope it's not going to be longer than three years. And would you say that you have certain criteria for what will make this successful? Good. If it's good. And how will you know if it's good? Oh, if I like it. I have a pretty mainstream taste. Pretty much everything that either during or afterwards I thought oh, I like it, oh, this is kind of good. Or even in, uh, at points where I worked on it and I wasn't sure if it's good or not, but I was sure that at this point in time, I don't quite know how to make it better. It turned out other people liked it too. So last question about, about your film. It's a documentary about happiness. Are you trying to find the secret of happiness? Or are you trying to show how other people experience happiness? I'm trying to see if it is possible to improve it. I think that basically sums it up. If I walk from 14th Street, where my home is, to 23rd Street, where my studio is, I encounter 
countless chimps. It seems that every business that goes out of business is transformed into a chimp. And it seems to me that there is a good number of proper, serious psychologists out there who think that you can train your mind to improve your well-being. But it seems that nobody does. I mean, everybody's in the gym training their body to improve their well-being, and that's, you know, fine with me. Ultimately, it seems to me that at least if I go to the gym, my goal is to improve my well-being, but also my mental well-being. And there is a, a nice quote out there by the mathematician Blaise Pascal, who says that every act that any human being is doing, including the person who goes to war or the person who avoids going to war, including the person who kills himself, ultimately is a desire to be in a happier state. That's marvelous. Thank you. We have come to the end of our broadcast today. I'd like to thank Stefan Sagmeister for joining me for such an inspiring conversation. I'd also like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.